I wanted to start by reiterating a couple of announcements that Greg made at the start of the service. I know some of you came in a bit late or people were still moving around, so you might have missed them. The first one was that uh, Mana, one of our members who recently passed away, her funeral is going to be here on Saturday, January 11th at 1 p.m. There'll be a reception afterwards. So as members of her church family, others who knew her, uh, we would invite you to come and be a part of that. So that's Saturday, January 11th at 1 p.m. And then also we, we do have a teen Bible study that's going to be beginning in a couple of weeks. I think, I, Greg, I think you got a couple of the details a little off. So it's starting Wednesday, but it's right, I checked, it is right in the bulletin. So that is on Wednesday, January 8th. So that's in a couple Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And that is going to be at our home. And we, we do indeed ask that you drive slow down our, down our road. It's a little dirt road and the dust kicks up and uh, neighbors don't appreciate that. So if you've got uh, teenagers 8th through 12th grade, they're welcome to join us. It's just going to be a Bible study, so bring a Bible, bring a pen. Uh, that's, all, that's all you're going to need. So this is our fourth uh, Sunday celebrating Christmas, or I should say celebrating Advent, the arrival, which is what the word means of Christ. Those four weeks are intentional and purposeful. It's not just trying to extend out Christmas and make more time for the music and the, the movies and the food. No, the idea is that during the first four weeks of December, uh, excitement and anticipation builds for Christmas Day, and that is meant to remember and to mimic the centuries during which anticipation was building before the first Christmas Day, before that day when Christ, our Redeemer, was born. So it's intentional, and that's why we do things the way we do them. And so this morning marks our Fourth celebration this year, and then Tuesday evening, we'll be meeting here at 6.30 p.m. for our Christmas Eve service. It's only about 45 minutes. If you haven't before, I would encourage you this year to come and be a part of it, make it a part of your tradition. It's going to be Tuesday night at 6.30. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you might know who he is, some of you don't. He was a German pastor, professor, author, and Nazi confronter. He was imprisoned for being an outspoken critic of Nazism and Hitler himself. He ended up spending two Christmases in prison, and he was hanged. He was executed only two weeks before World War II ended. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a letter that he wrote to his parents. He was only 39 when he died. And he wrote this letter to his parents around one of those Christmases when he was in prison. He wrote, Viewed from a Christian perspective, Christmas in prison can hardly be considered 
problematic. I'm going to read more of what he wrote, but I want to read that sentence to you again, because if, if that sentence didn't shock you, it should. Listen carefully. He wrote, Viewed from a Christian perspective, Christmas in prison can hardly be considered problematic. Most likely, many of those here in this building will celebrate a more meaningful and authentic Christmas than in places where it is celebrated in name only. That misery, sorrow, poverty, loneliness, helplessness, and guilt mean something quite different in the eyes of God than according to human judgment that God turns toward the very places from which humans turn away. That Christ was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. A prisoner grasps this better than others. And for him, this is truly good news. So here's the point that he is making. It is that Christmas is more easily grasped and received by those who are in desperation. Christmas, the birth of a Savior, is what he means and what we mean. Christmas marks celebration of the birth of a Savior. And so, someone can more easily grasp the good news that Jesus came into a dark world when they are surrounded by obvious darkness, like in a prison, is his point. The message of Christmas that God has sent a Savior to be born to live and die for sinners who are spiritually desperate is more easily received as good news by people who are physically and materially Desperate is the point that he's making. And so this is the danger that we are in. We are at risk of minimizing Christmas. We are at risk of minimizing the birth of Christ. We are at risk of minimizing the good news of the gospel because we're not, most of us, we're not physically desperate. Most of us are not materially desperate. Most of us are not surrounded by obvious darkness. And that could be a dangerous place to be. Because many of us don't have severe physical or material needs, it's easy for us to think that we must not either have spiritual needs or be spiritually desperate. It can be another occasion to not need God and to not trust in God. Many things come easy for many of you. And so it could be a dangerous spot. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, the author writes this in a prayer to God, and he says, 
to God, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So he says, God, don't give me too little, I pray, and don't give me too much, I pray. Give me only what I need. Only what is needful for me. And then he says, why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Most of us today, we are not tempted to steal, but we are tempted to forget the Lord. Comparatively speaking, he's given most of us not poverty and not merely enough, but riches. He's given us riches. And so the danger, according to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a a secondary source, but then what Proverbs 30 says, our primary source, the danger is that we forget God, that we forget our need for God. The reality is, no matter your condition physically today, your condition spiritually is desperate. And so how you're doing outwardly is not necessarily a reflection of how you're doing inwardly. And what you need outwardly is not necessarily a reflection of what you need inwardly. All of you inwardly, you are poor. All of you inwardly, you are bankrupt. All of you inwardly have needs that you cannot meet and no one else can meet. You are as desperate as you can be. We're not in prison. We're not without. Our lives are not endangered. And you should not feel guilty about that. You should be thankful and grateful for that. But we should understand the risk of having so much. And that is that we forget the Lord. That we fail to see our need for Christ. And so I pray that sermons like this about the peace that Jesus brings us spiritually are helpful for us along the way. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would reach our hearts through your word, that we would love you more, reach our minds through your word, that we would understand you more, reach our wills, God, and change our hearts, change our minds, change our wills, that we would follow you, obey you, serve you, worship you more fully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And if you are using one of our church's Bibles, you'll find that text on page 805. Our focus will be verses 8 through 14, which immediately follow the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph were in the little town of Bethlehem to register for a census. And while they were there, 
Mary went into labor. They tried to get into the town's inn. You know the story. There was no room, and so they ended up finding shelter in a barn or in a stable. Early church tradition tells us a, a cave. Mary gave birth to the Son of God. They named him Jesus. The baby was then wrapped up in swaddling cloths, we're told in those first seven verses, and he was laid to rest in a, a manger or an animal feeding trough. That's the account that we find in those first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And then in verses 8 through 14, you can read, the author Luke, he shifts scenes from this cave where Jesus is born to a nearby pasture. And in this nearby pasture, there are some shepherds who are watching over their sheep. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Not many people would be awake in the middle of the night, just like most of you, unless you work, you're not awake in the middle of the night. Well, shepherds would be awake. They were working in the middle of the night. They needed to be alert during the night. Thieves could come and take their sheep. Predators, other animals could come and harm their sheep. And so they, they needed to stay awake. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. We obviously don't know exactly what that looked like. We know that it was obviously supernatural. We know that a, a bright light suddenly shone in the darkness. We know it was beautiful, it was intense, it was overwhelming, which is why the reaction of the shepherds is they were filled with fear. Not excitement at first, not joy at first, but fear. And so the angel reassured the shepherds with these words. Angels are frequently having to do this when they appear to people. It's okay, you're not going to die that's their thought when faced with the presence of God's glory. Verses 10 and 11, the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Of all the people to receive this birth announcement, these shepherds in this field. Today, what happens? Family and close friends are usually texted right away. And then the news begins to spread from there. Maybe a few weeks later, a birth announcement gets dropped in the mail. God knew of this birth, of course. Mary and Joseph knew of the birth. The angels knew of this birth. And now, shepherds of all people. Shepherds. The angel sends the shepherds to visit the child and tells them what to look for. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There may have been several babies that they would find wrapped in swaddling cloths in Bethlehem, but only one would be found in an animal feeding trough. So he says to the shepherds, this is how you will know that you have found the right baby. And then before the shepherds can pack up, the angel was joined by other angels. So one angel is joined by other angels, and they all broke out in song. Verse 12, I'm sorry, 13. And this verse is where we'll focus. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That may be the most well-known verse of your Bible. Christians, non-Christians sing this verse this time of year. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the angels, they burst out in song at the occasion of Jesus' birth. And what they sang about, it gets to the very meaning of his birth. That gets, that gets the very meaning of Advent. This gets to the very meaning of the arrival, the birth of Christ. His birth means, number one, glory to God. Glory to God or praise to God, adoration to God, worship to God because of the birth of this child and peace for people. Glory to God and peace for people. The birth of Christ for those with whom God is pleased means Peace. The Greek word for peace here is irony, and it means a state of mutual harmony between people or groups. It's probably what you mean when you use the word peace. It means a state of harmony between people or groups. And on earth, Harmony between people or groups among those with whom he is pleased. So what is this peace? That's, that's what we need to understand. This is what the, angel, the angels announced at the birth of Christ. It meant that on earth there would be this peace. So what is this peace? So I've done this before, and I think it's important to do again. And that is to start by clarifying what this peace is not. And I think by clarifying what this peace is not, it helps us narrow down and understand what exactly this peace is. So first, what about world peace? Is, is that what this is? Is this a state of harmony 
between all tribes and nations of the earth? No. No, Christ did not come 2,000 years ago to bring peace between warring nations and peoples. In fact, listen to what Jesus says just later on in this gospel in Luke chapter 21, verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. There, there is debate about when Jesus is talking about there. But the bottom line is that these wars and tumults would take place after Jesus lived and died and ascended into heaven. So there would not be at least initially, political peace on earth. This state of perpetual war, you know, remains. This is true today. We have millennia of wars behind us and wars still today. Even where we live in this nation, which is as sharply divided as I remember it, so that's not what the angels or the New Testament writers were talking about, not world peace. Well, second, what about relational peace? Is that what this is? Relational peace. Does Jesus bring harmony into all your relationships? No. No. Christ did not come to end conflict between you and other people. In fact, I know that some of you experience less relational peace because you're a Christian. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 12? Verses 51 through 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. Verse 52. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. In many ways, Jesus comes to bring disturbance into your life. And not necessarily comfort and calm. And not relational peace. Sometimes your love for Jesus, above all other things, will cause conflict between you and those that you love. Sometimes the fact that you love Jesus more than you love anyone else will lead to conflict between you and those that you love. Sometimes because of your primary allegiance to Christ and your unwillingness to do some things 
that will create conflict between you and other people. And the way you live your life will be in direct opposition to others. And sometimes those others will be people that you deeply love and deeply care about. But you will reach an impasse where to follow Christ means that there's going to be division between you and even those you love. So Jesus did did not come to bring world peace, that is evident, and he did not even come to bring relational peace. And finally, third, what about inner peace? Is that what this is? This is closer, I think. But no. Jesus did not come, Christ did not come to bring internal, psychological peace where there is now no conflict within you or maybe even a lack of conflict within you. Now let's think about this for just a minute because Paul writes in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, that if in the midst of our anxiety we pray to God that God will bring peace. And it It is an internal peace. It is an inner peace. So don't want to ignore that. Let me read to you what he writes. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. So this is what you do when you're anxious. Are any of you anxious today? Do any of you have a lack of peace and calm and rest within you? Some of you are more anxious this time of year than any other time of year. So what do you do? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, so here it is, it's the same word, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So clearly, there is, when you are facing anxiety, there is this peace, this calm, this rest that you can pray for. It is inner. And God, He may grant that. And He may bring a peace that's even mysterious. It's just out of nowhere. It surpasses even your understanding. And it is great. But it is not, and you know this, it is not some abiding peace. It comes by God's grace and His mercy, but it also goes. And it's why, what are you doing the very next day? You're praying again. And praying that God would bring that peace again. And you're laying your requests and casting all of your cares before Him. The reality is that And I'll read what Paul says now in Romans chapter 7. In a sense, when you became a Christian, the inner conflict actually began. The inner conflict actually started where before the word says you were enslaved to the flesh. That means your own sinful desires. No desire to please God, only a desire to please yourself. But now when the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in you, there's this battle now. There is this war between the Spirit and the flesh. Christian, you're going to walk in the flesh, you're going to walk in the Spirit. 
You're going to go this way? You're going to go that way? Listen to how Paul describes this. And I ask you, does this sound like inner peace? Romans 7.18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. In other words, the Spirit dwells in me. He is good. But in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am. As Paul, he is absolutely a Christian when he is writing that, and he says, I have this wicked tendency in me still. So, this is war. This is conflict. And if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know what this is like. You want to do this. You want to stop doing this. And here you are, and you're apologizing again. Here you are in repentance before God again. Repentance to your wife again, to your kids again. This good that you really do want to do in your inner being. And yet, the sin is still working out of you. It's conflict. But not world peace. Not relational peace. Not inner peace. Not yet. Christians should pursue political peace. Christians should pursue relational peace. What has Pastor Greg taught us? Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus wrote. Psalm 34, 14 tells us to seek and pursue peace. But again, this is not the peace that the angels are talking about. So what is it? Well, let's read the text again. Just this verse. The angels came and praised God. And what did they say? What did they sing? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Among those with whom he is pleased. That is God. And on earth, peace. Where? Among those with whom he is pleased. So this is not peace. It's evident even in that verse. This is not peace between you and other people. This is not peace within yourself. This is peace between man and God. This is peace between people and God. But which people? Not all people. This is not peace among all people. This is peace with a select people. And who are those select people? 
What does it say? Who is it with? With whom he is pleased. God is pleased with some and God is not pleased with others. And this peace is among those with whom he is pleased and it is not among those with whom he is not pleased. That means that God takes pleasure in some and there is peace between him and them, but God does not take pleasure in others. So let me read you a few verses that make it very clear that God is not pleased with people. Let me first quote from J.I. Packer. He says that God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. That's really important because the, the Bible makes clear, Psalm 7 makes clear that God is angry all the time. He's also happy all the time. God is not like you and me. But he's angry all the time. And he is filled with wrath. But when you think of God as angry, you, you don't want to compare that to you as angry. Because you, when you're angry, and me when I'm angry, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's wrong. It's, that may be a little high, but it is sinful. Don't be too quick to call your anger righteous anger. I mean, am I really angry right now about what God is angry about? And am, I really, am I really being angry in a righteous way? And is it really leading me to do good and not to sin? Typically, it's not. So, Packer is saying it's not like that. This capricious, you know, when am I going to get it? When am I not going to get it? It comes and goes. It's irritable. It's morally sketchy. He says it is indeed, it is a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. So since Adam sinned in the garden... And sin came into this good world that God created. God's righteous, just position against sin is one of anger and wrath. It is because He is good and holy and righteous that He must feel this way. So we have verses like Psalm 5.5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Have you done evil? I have. But you hate all evil doers. Jeremiah 30, 23. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. 
Do you do wicked things? Have you done wicked things? Romans 3. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. Verse 23. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And then Hebrews 9.27. And every single one of us sinners is destined to die once. It's final. And then to face judgment. There are other scriptures that we could read. And in light of those scriptures, it is amazing here to read the angels say that there are some with whom God is pleased. Like, how is that possible? If God hates evildoers, if God is against the wicked, then how is it possible that God could be pleased with anybody that he could take pleasure in anybody and make it personal. That it's not just something about people out there or something that we think about theologically or theoretically, but personally. What does the Bible say is your condition before God apart from the gospel, apart from the good news, apart from grace? Let's remember the Bible says that you are a sinner. It's part of your identity. We could go back to Genesis 3 and we could read about Adam and Eve in the garden. We could read ahead to Romans chapter 5 and find out that Adam was there as a representative of all mankind. He was representing me. He was representing you. He did what I would do. I would do what he would do. He was there as our representative. And when he sinned, everyone inherited the guilt of that sin. And everyone who was born after him, beginning with Cain and Abel and all the way down the line to you, is born guilty of his sin even. We have a sinful nature. And then that is why, because you are a sinner by nature, you choose to sin and I choose to sin. I choose to go my own way. I do what's wrong, and often if I'm honest, intentionally do what's wrong, knowing it's wrong, because at least in the moment, I want to do it. And I want it, at least in the moment, I want it more than I want God. And the Bible says, this is worthy of eternal judgment. To sin against a perfect and holy God. R.C. Sproul called it cosmic treason. It is betrayal against God. Who has loved you and given you life and cared for you and protected you. And given everything you need and more. And he has done that so that you would love him and worship him. And we haven't. Before Christ, we didn't. It's a desperate state. So how does Christ make peace possible? How does Jesus make it possible for God to delight in people? Well, this is the good news 
There are many scriptures I could read. I'm just going to read four. But this is why, keep in mind, that the angels were able to sing peace on earth with whom God is pleased. The birth of Jesus was going to make this possible. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so we have been cleared, we have been judged in such a way that we are no longer seen as guilty. We have peace, same word, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the peace comes through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. And you, he's writing to a Christian here. And you who were once, you were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. And a Christian knows that. You once were that, but he has now, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He's reconciled you to God by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He takes your sin, gives you his righteousness. So why was Jesus born according to Colossians chapter 1? Why did he take on this body of flesh? In other words, why was he born? So that he could live and die. He was born so that he could live and die and reconcile you to God and then present you one day holy and blameless. There is peace between you and God. Two more verses. Romans 3.26 It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. God punished sin and the justifier of the one, that would be you, Christian, who has faith in Jesus. And then finally, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins. He was the righteous dying for the unrighteous. It's you and me. That He might, here's the language of reconciliation again, bring us to God. That He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So there is conflict in the world. There is conflict even in your family, I bet. There is conflict in your own heart. But Christian, there is no longer conflict. There is no longer enmity. There is no longer hostility between you and God. No longer. It makes all the other conflict bearable. It makes all the other conflict, it puts all the other conflict into perspective. Where you most desperately need peace, Christian, there is peace. You may have all kinds of people that you want to please and are even tempted to 
live in such a way that you get other people to be pleased with you. But the only one you really need to be pleased with you is God. And in Christ, Christian, God is pleased with you. There was enmity. There was conflict. And you were born in it. There was hostility. There was war. But now, through Christ, there is peace. Now, it's interesting because you really do need to believe the bad news before you can believe the good news. You really do need to understand that there needs to be. So we bring or I bring the truth of God's word. And then I pray and we would pray that as Paul said to the Thessalonians, that God's word would come to you in power. In power. Because many of us who are around you, we can remember when we heard these same scriptures and we heard these same things and we thought to ourselves, I'm not that bad. That's talking about somebody else. I'm a good person. I don't deserve that. I deserve good things. That's an overreaction of God. That would not be right. That would not be just. Some of you can remember. And some of you can even remember the moment or maybe it was more gradual. And now here you are as a Christian. And you believe you're a sinner more than ever. And you believe you're guilty of sin more than ever. And the years go by and by God's grace, you're growing and you're maturing and you really are sinning less, many of you, but you're also aware of sins that you weren't aware of a year ago or two years ago. And you start talking the way Paul was talking in Romans chapter 7. Man, there's, there's like a war within me. But there's not war between you and God. Which is why Jesus, He is our peace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes, You will never have true peace until your mind is satisfied. If you merely get some emotional or psychological experience, it may keep you quiet and give you rest for a while, but sooner or later, a problem will arise. A situation will confront you. A, a question will come to your mind, perhaps through reading a book or in a conversation, and you will not be able to answer, and so you will lose your peace. There is no true peace with God until the mind has seen and grasped and taken hold of this blessed doctrine of the gospel and so finds itself at rest. In conclusion, do you have this peace? I'm not asking if you have inner peace. I'm not asking if you have relational peace. Do you have this peace between you and God? Is God at peace with you today? Notice I didn't ask, are you at peace with God? That's not the right question. Is God at peace with you? 
Is God pleased with you? Another way of asking, do you have this peace on earth is, is God pleased with you in Jesus Christ? Right now in this moment. Is God pleased with you in Jesus Christ? John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, it remains. It remains on him. And so the call of the good news, the call of the gospel is that you would turn from sin, that you would turn from going your own way and turn to Jesus and believe the good news that he came and lived and suffered and died and rose from the dead in your place so that you could be reconciled to God. You believe that good news and you turn to him as your Lord. You turn to him as your savior. You turn to him as your treasure. The promise of the gospel is that if you would repent and believe and put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you would be saved.